0: Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this day that we can worship you, that we can come together, that we can be here as your people, as your church, as your saints, as your sons and daughters, as undeserving as we are. You've brought us together for this purpose, that we might encourage each other, that we might build each other up, that we might uh, exhort each other, challenge one another, correct each other, rebuke one another, love one another, Serve one another and pray together. Father, we pray uh, for those in, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, who are wrestling with a, a severe water, uh a lack of water, a lack of safe water, a lack of healthy water. Uh, Father, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters there, our our fellow churches. that you would help them to come around one another during this difficult season, um, to to lift one another up, to support one another as the church. And we pray, Father, that through this that they would also be a blessing to their community, a source of strength, a source of hope, a source of confidence that you are the one who holds the future. We pray that even this might be used for your glory to make known your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, though, that the political leaders there at the local level, at the state level, maybe especially, at the national level, as necessary, will be responsive to to bring an end and and relief to, to a crisis that doesn't seem like it needed to be a crisis. Father, we pray as well for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are facing persecution, who are imprisoned right at this moment, not knowing when and if they might be released, when and if they might see loved ones, when and if they might be rejoined with your church. Encourage them, Father. Strengthen them. Bring to mind your scriptures for them, scriptures they've read, scriptures they've memorized, scriptures they've heard, that they might find life in your word, hope and peace and comfort. Give them favor with their guards and their... uh, those who run the prisons, that they may have an opportunity to speak the gospel even from their chains. Pray, Father, for their families who are desperately worried for them, that they would place their confidence in you, knowing that this is not an end, no matter how it gets resolved. Father, we pray uh, for so many in our congregation who have uh, recently been moving or are on the verge of moving that you would help them to be settled in new homes, in new neighborhoods, in new communities. That they would be peacemakers among their neighbors, that they would be a source of stability in their neighborhoods, that they would be a light and beacon of truth, and that you would revitalize communities and neighborhoods by the presence of your gospel on their lips. We pray, Father, that we'd be faithful to hear your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in the last message uh, in a series of sermons from Second Timothy. Uh, so if you want to turn there, Second Timothy chapter 4 click, swipe, tap. You do what you need to do to get there. Um, I meant to tell the Connections team this, and I I completely forgot, um, but we have new sermon cards here. They're pink. They're bright. You can't miss them. They're at the opening table. So on your way out this morning, grab one of these. These will tell you uh, all of the sermons and the passages for them coming up uh, through January 8th. And again, we just encourage you guys to to read the Scriptures uh, during the week uh, ahead of coming together so that the God's Word is on your heart and your mind and, and that you're maybe a little more spiritually prepared to, to hear whatever we talk about and to be able to check that what someone might say from this pulpit follows God's Word. That is our ultimate standard is God's Word. So those are there for your encouragement. You're going to see we're going to be jumping into or back into, if you've been here for a little bit, Um, the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to wrap up the book of 1 Samuel that we started a couple years ago. But right now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 7, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This word we have, euthanasia. It's, it's been a, a word, it's been, been controversial in, in our culture for a number of years. The De- debate about it's kind of calmed down in, in recent years. I think we've just found other things to be aggravated about. But debate is typically about whether a person can choose how and when to die and, and whether they always have that right or, or whether there are certain circumstances maybe where they have that right, like, like advanced age or, or illness. And then at some point you gain this right to euthanasia. It's sort of an ironic debate, though, because in the original sense of the term, euthanasia, uh, what we talk about today might not be euthanasia at all. Uh, The word euthanasia comes to us from Greek. There's a little prefix on the front, eu, which means good. It also gives us things like the ev in evangel, the good news, the gospel. And then the back portion of euthanasia comes from the word thanatos, death. So euthanasia is a good death. And you know, this was a a debate of considerable philosophical importance in the ancient world, and I I suppose philosophy and religion kind of always come back to questions about death and and things that are beyond this world, don't they? There's an inescapable fact that we die, and and we want to know what it means or how we can give it meaning. Aristotle, the The great Greek philosopher argued that death from sickness or shipwreck was terrible because it's a a person going out in their weakness and their helplessness. By contrast, dying on the battlefield was the best way to die. It meant that your death was an example of courage and conviction, a virtuous death, thought Aristotle was a good death. By the Middle Ages, the question of dying well had become especially important in places like Europe because we had the, the so-called Black Death that swept the com- continent, not just there, but also North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, some estimates have as many as 100 million people died, which was nearly a quarter of the world's population. Maybe as many as 60% of Europeans died from the plague. And so as Europe was, was sort of raising its head from the worst of that pandemic, a new book became immensely popular titled Ars Moriendi, The Art of Death. That book and, and others like it, sort of a, a genre that formed, tried to provide a, a distinctly Christian approach to life at the end of life. One of the better-known sections talks about the the temptations that dying people often face, temptations to lose their faith, temptations to despair, temptations to worry about temporal things like family and wealth, temptations to become impatient. And for those who maybe have conquered all of those, a temptation to become spiritually prideful. It's a really practical book if you think about it. Christian thinkers likely agreed with Aristotle that a good death is a virtuous death. But Christian virtues like faith, hope, and love were often at odds with the virtues of pagan philosophy. The earliest Christians, they they did prize courage and conviction like Aristotle, but but they didn't mean a prized death on the battlefield. Those, Those were the world's battles. They were justified or not, they were struggles for flesh and blood to gain or defend the fading treasures of this life. For Christians, a good death, a a great death, would be nearly exactly the opposite. A death that forsook everything this world had to offer in order to gain everything that Jesus offered in his heavenly kingdom. And maybe the pinnacle Example of that for a Christian was the death of a martyr. To be persecuted to the point of death, but to look death straight in the eyes and to refuse to turn one's back on Jesus Christ. That was a great death. We don't speak about death often enough. I I think that's leads to the fact that we're often unprepared for it. We have not been discipled to die. But we must disciple to die. In this passage, Paul himself is facing death, even the the death of a martyr. And he wants to impress upon Timothy the inevitability of death, his preparation for death, and his hope in death. And in this way, he is discipling Timothy to die, preparing Timothy also to die well. So We're going to look at the uh, the inevitability of death, the preparation for death, and the hope in death. Now, Paul's Paul's words in verse 6 are are really stark, especially in the context that that first word, for, ties Paul's words backward to what he just had said at the beginning of this chapter, Uh, And it's filled with commands, exhortations, pleas from Paul to Timothy that have a a sense of urgency. I'm going to read it. We're not going to camp there, but I want you to hear it. Paul begins this chapter. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itch, having itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Preach. Be ready. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. Be sober-minded. Endure. Do the work. Fulfill. That's Nine commands focused on persevering in Christian ministry and remaining faithful to the end. Nine commands. Why? For, Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So so here's Paul. He's writing from a Roman prison And and he's not speaking about his departure to go back to Jerusalem. He's not talking about a missionary trip to Spain. He's talking about his own death, and not just any death. He sees his death in some way as sacrificial. Describes as being poured out like a drink offering. Uh, A drink offering was a pretty common feature of ancient sacrifices. A liquid could be poured out as a ritual offering to a deity. Sometimes in the pagan religions, that could be the blood, or the blood of uh, even human blood at times. Not so much, though, under Jewish tradition. Under the Old Testament law, drink offering, usually wine, was a required part of many sacrifices. But when it was offered, it it wasn't the focus. So the focus was always on the animal. Whether a sheep, or a goat, or a bull, or a cow, that would have been the most expensive most complicated part of any sacrifice. But when it was required, when a drink offering was required, the sacrifice was not complete without the drink offering, poured out on the ground before the altar of God. So it's peculiar that Paul would describe his life being like that of a drink offering poured out. We might imagine that if Paul saw himself as being willing to give up his life for the sake of the gospel, he might rightly describe it as the sacrifice. After all, in places like Romans 12, Paul famously urged the Roman Christians to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So why is Paul's life a drink offering? I think it's because Paul saw his life as sacrificial but the focus wasn't on him. He uses a a similar expression in in his letter to the Philippian Christians. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So from Paul's perspective, the faith of the Christians in Philippi was an offering from him to God. He worked hard in the ministry, and that ministry bore fruit in terms of converts to faith in Jesus, and, and Paul offered it back to God. This is my sacrifice. My, my life's existence is to give you glory by seeing others come to faith in Jesus. That is my sacrifice. And as far as Paul was concerned, then his life, was just a drink offering, the, the finishing touch, without which the sacrifice would not be complete. But the highlight, the expensive, the costly part, the valuable part, was the faith of these Christians. Paul seems to have that same sort of passion in this letter as well. So in, in chapter 2 of Second Timothy, he can write, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul endured everything for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain the salvation of that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And that urgency seems to be present in chapter 4, only now it's directed at Timothy. When he wrote to the Philippians, he was chained. And he recognized that death was possible. But now, writing to Timothy, something has changed. He's chained. Maybe, Maybe he's chained again. Maybe he's still chained, depending on how you work out the timeline of Paul's life but at this point Paul now has confidence that he will die and not just in the natural course of things from from an illness or old age but he is going to die in the service of the gospel at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero Paul was going to die There's an old phrase that's been popular down through the ages and especially gained prominence in medieval Europe. It's stuck around. You might see it on goth art or somebody's tattoo, the the Latin phrase, memento mori, which can roughly be translated, remember you will die. It's a reminder of the the fleeting nature of life. It's a reminder that, that we shouldn't be too proud We shouldn't be too confident. We shouldn't be too in love with what this world can offer because you also will die. By pointing to his own death in the service of the gospel, Paul was reminding the younger Timothy that death is a part of life. And that unless Jesus returns first, it comes on all of us eventually. But he's also giving Timothy a sobering reminder that death is a lifestyle hazard of being a Christian. Preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort, be sober minded, endure, do the work, fulfill all of it. Just like me, Timothy. And do it all because, for he says, I'm going to die. I don't want to overstate this point, but, I, but I'm going to risk overstating it a little bit because we, I think we tend to underemphasize it in our culture. We spend so much of our cultural energy trying not to die, and, and that's a good thing. It's good to preserve life, but especially in, in first world countries like. Like the one we live in, we almost cannot imagine death outside of old age. And think about it from from the day you start working, whether at 14 or 24, you start saving for your future in your later years. Some of you do it intentionally, some of you have it forced upon you through the social security system but there is an expectation that at one point you will be something like 75 or 80 and have to provide for yourself. We're so confident that we have those years that we start preparing for them when we're a teenager. But Christian, if that's what you are, if you're a Christian, there is a lifestyle hazard Of following Jesus that might result in your death coming significantly sooner than the course of nature would dictate. Is that likely? No. The vast majority of Christians in history have lived relatively safe lives and we live in a period of great religious toleration that would have been unheard of in nearly any other period of human history and frankly is unheard of in many other places in the world today. But things change. And we don't know what what tomorrow will bring or or the next decade, But, but I do know that there can be no following of Jesus unless we are willing to die with Jesus. There can be no following of Jesus unless we are willing to die with Jesus. Death is coming. So are you ready for it, Christian? Can you accept it? We can say something else here, and and this is where maybe significant discipleship is needed. If if Paul's life is being poured out like a drink offering, then his life mattered in so far as that drink offering that you offered on the sacrifice on on the altar in Jerusalem mattered because of who it was offered to. And so Paul's life, if it is being poured out like a drink offering, it mattered That is a real euthanasia. That is a truly good death. Paul is giving his life for the sake of the gospel. He has presented scores, if not hundreds, if not thousands of spiritual lives to God as a sacrificial offering. And his own death is just the closing of one chapter and the opening of another. In many ways, Paul has already been dead for a very long time. Think about how he writes of his own existence to the churches in Galatia. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you kill? How do you kill a man who is already dead? A dead man dying, a dead man dying, that is a good death for a Christian. Paul wanted to disciple Timothy to make his life count. And the way to make his life count was to live as if he were already dead. To be crucified with Christ and to live as if one's life worked is an offering to the king of kings. there's There's no doubt that everything in this chapter was old to Timothy. I'm sure he's heard Paul talk about these things. He may have been around when Paul wrote some of these other letters. He's certainly heard Paul's preaching, but he too needed to be reminded, refreshed. We all do. We need encouragement. We need to be challenged. We need to remember that we to all will die. And so, we need to make it count. Christians, we have a responsibility to disciple one another in such a way that they are ready to die and they are ready to die for the sake of Jesus. Because in truth, if they're not ready to die for the sake of Jesus, they're not ready to die at all. Death cannot be a taboo subject for us as Christians because Jesus has already died. His blood was already spilled on the cross. He was already put in the tomb. Death cannot be taboo for us. He calls us to take up our crosses, to be crucified with him. Death cannot be taboo for us. If Jesus has already died, and we have died with him, then we must remember our deaths. Memento mori. Think on it. Talk on it. Encourage each other to make this cross-carrying life count. Death is inevitable. Well, how do we know if we are prepared to die? Well, we have the same preparation as paul 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 writes about his preparation for death in verse 7 he says i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith it's interesting that in the closing to paul's first letter to timothy so chapter 6 of first timothy paul writes to timothy fight the good fight of faith it's a command fight the good fight of faith Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul reflects on his own life and says, he has fought the good fight. The word that that Paul uses for Fight here, it was a noun and a verb. Uh, it's where we get the word agony, agonize. And, and it meant something similar back then to struggle, to exert oneself, to do battle, to expend energy. And so when Paul says he fought the good fight, it, he doesn't mean he got into the ring with an in his prime Mike Tyson and took an uppercut to the chin in 15 seconds of the first round and crumpled to the mat. No, he. He is saying he took a beating. But more than that, he consistently took the beating. He regularly exerted himself until his life was taken from him. For Paul, agony was was, was the way an athlete trained. It was persistently with a goal in mind. It was how he could describe his prayer life He struggled, or he wrestled in prayer. Prayer was not peaceful meditation for Paul, but spiritual warfare. Agonizing is is how Paul could describe the entire work of his ministry, but it was an agony empowered by God's strength in him. And, And this agonizing is how Jesus described the Christian life. So in Luke 13, we read this. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive, agonize, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer you. I do not know you or where you came from. Christian, I I don't know if maybe you were led to believe that the Christian life is easy, but if you were, let me tell you, it's not. We live in a world that, that takes our message to be foolish, to be silly, to be antiquated, even barbaric. We face an adversary, the devil, who, as Peter tells us, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if that were not enough, Peter can also tell us the passions of our own flesh wage war against our souls. Life is not easy. but We also serve a great king. And though his standards are uncompromising, he is full of grace and forgiveness and peace. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He leads us beside still waters. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He is a good and gentle king. So make up your mind now that you will fight a good fight. Commit that you will agonize gladly through the pains of this life to find in the end that you can unclench your fists. And because it's a battle we're in, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult battle. And so we must do what the author of Hebrews taught us to do. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Paul says he's finished the race. And although that that could be understood uh, purely metaphorically, given what else Paul says in this passage, it's hard not to hear an athletic metaphor. The, The types of competitions at events like the ancient Olympic Games were collectively called naked competitions. The the athletes generally competed naked back then. And that word competition, it's the same word as fight, the good fight. It's the struggle, it's the agony. It's the the naked struggles. The races at the ancient Olympic Games and and its similar games throughout the uh, Greco-Roman world were considered to be the most Prized events. They were generally sprints of, of relatively short distances. You, you might hear somebody say, you know, the Christian life, when Paul talks about a race, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. No, Paul only knew about sprints. I, I understand what, the, what, what people are trying to say when they say the Christian life is more like a marathon than a sprint, but the only races that Paul had in mind were sprints. The most famous of those was the stadion, uh, it was a roughly a 200 meter dash. The first recorded Olympics consisted only of that event, only of that race. And the winner was a man named Koroivas. He became a legend. His grave was marked and known at least until the second century. Nearly a thousand years after his death, people Still knew where he was buried and celebrated this man. I didn't know that, and you probably didn't know that before this sermon, but it's a testimony to the importance of these events in the ancient world that anyone at all knows the name of a winner of an essentially meaningless race nearly 3,000 years after it took place. Flags fly forever. But even in the ancient world, an athlete didn't just show up on game day and and run a successful course. Training, preparation, intense focus were required to get to the games, let alone get to the finish line. And yet Paul kept the faith. He says, I have kept the faith. It would be easy to excuse Paul for not keeping the faith. I mean, after all, he only come to recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and as Lord, as God overall, at a, at a fairly robust age. And his life before that had been full of religious pride, intellectual rigor, and persecution of Christians. And for his change of heart, Paul received beatings, imprisonments, threats, he was kicked out of synagogues. He was rejected by his own countrymen. His life became increasingly difficult so that at many points, if, at many, many points, if he had just simply renounced Jesus Christ, if he had simply just said, I, I will stop preaching about Jesus. I will stop preaching that Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. I will stop preaching that he rose from the dead to give life to all who receive him. If he had just promised that, to stay quiet, his life could have been so much less burdensome, so much more tolerable physically, and mentally, and emotionally. But Paul could not deny what he had come to believe, that Jesus was the only hope of salvation, the eternal king who was coming to judge the living and the dead. Paul kept the faith. Did Paul do that on his own? Well, let's listen to his own words. Earlier in the letter of 2 Timothy, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Or Romans 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. He wrote to the Philippians his, his gratitude for their concern for him and sharing in his troubles, as he put it. To the Christians in Colossae, he expressed his gratitude for Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, who had been a comfort to him. And, and we can't forget how Paul gushed about Philemon's slave, a man named Onesimus, and pled for Onesimus' freedom because of how much joy and comfort and blessing Onesimus was to Paul in his struggles. Paul was not a lone ranger. I think we sometimes get the idea that he was from reading the book of Acts, but we're romanticizing it. He's not a lone ranger. He fought the good fight he finished the race. He kept the faith because he was strengthened and supported by his fellow Christians. I'm sure it would have been easy for a lot of Paul's fellow Christians to think to themselves, what, what do I have to offer Paul? He's so passionate about Jesus. He's, I mean, he's way more strong spiritually than I am. He knows God so well. What do I have to offer him? But just the opposite was true. Paul knew his weakness and how desperately he needed other Christians. I hear a similar sentiment sometimes around Gateway. Um, So many of you are younger and you don't feel like you have anything to offer someone who's a little older, who's been walking with Jesus maybe a little bit longer, who might know a little bit more, someone you look at as, oh, they're really spiritually strong. But look at Paul. He needed these fellow Christians. And Paul's ministry would not have been complete had not this Gang of Jesus followers surrounded him and lifted him up in their prayers, with their comfort, their support, their words of encouragement, their visits, their their talks, their chats, their smiles and laughs. Christian, we need each other. No matter how strong or weak we think we are, we need each other. We, We minister to each other. We disciple each other. And whether in in great or small ways, our mutual comfort and support is one of God's greatest gifts to help us to reach the end. And that's how we can be prepared to die. Paul concludes with a hope that he has in the face of death. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We read something like the crown of righteousness, and we might be tempted to think of the glorious crowns worn by by the kings and queens of earth, but, but actually, Paul has in mind a very different crown. This is the woven wreath that was awarded to winning athletes, whether it was the uh, uh, olive leaves of some games or the laurels of other games. In the ancient world, there was just one winner, and that winner would receive the crown. But, But Paul, in the way he tweaks the analogy, I guess, the metaphor, finishing the race at all entitles the athlete to a prize because it wasn't a crown of of gold it wasn't even a crown of olive leaves or laurels it's a crown of righteousness and that crown will be given by jesus himself who paul calls the righteous judge and as the righteous judge, judges, uh, Jesus is the only one fit to give a crown of righteousness. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To, to pass from this life into the arms of a dear Savior who knows exactly how agonizing your life has been. Not just because he knows all things, but also because he lived a life of even greater agony than yours. And upon death to be received into his arms, he who has borne with our our sins and our mistakes patiently, only to in the end finally fully rescue us and make us forever righteous, and that's that's not just for Paul. He says, he says, Timothy, this is for you as well, it's for everyone who loved his appearing. Jesus' appearance on, on the scene of human history was not loved by all. Jesus, Jesus is threatening, and if Jesus isn't threatening, you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus threatens to upend everything we hold dear, everything this world clings to. And that makes him dangerous. That makes him easy to not love. Jesus threatens your finances. Jesus threatens your ethics. He threatens your sexuality. He threatens your idea of peace, and your idea of war. He threatens your allegiances. He threatens your very idea of what is good and right. He threatens your plans. He threatens your dreams. He threatens your hopes. He threatens your expectations. He died on a cross, not because he was weak, but because he was strong. Strong enough to bear the weight of our sins and to pay the price of our well-earned death. And he calls on us to repent, to turn our backs on everything we've held dear, all of our selfish desires, our wicked ways, and instead call him and him alone good. And that's threatening because it implies that what I'm leaving behind is less than good. And we often don't want to accept that fact. But those who do come to him, who receive his forgiveness, which, which effectively rescues us from facing the eternal penalty of our sin, for those who do that, there is a waiting Savior and a crown of righteousness. If we could summarize Paul here, uh, put it into a little different words, we might say that because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has done, then Christian, if you are a Christian, death is victory. Death is victory. He's going to die, and he's going to receive the victor's crown. Death is victory. It is the final victory over sin. It is the final victory over the weakness of this life. And it is the entering into the victory already won, by Jesus on the cross. Death is victory for the Christian. The great British poet John Donne penned in what has been called his 10th Holy Sonnet, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst, thou dost overthrow. Die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but by, thy, but by thy pictures be much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow. As soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery, thou art slave to fate. Chance, kings and desperate men, and dost with poison, war and sickness dwell, and or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Dunn wrote often about death, not because he was morbid, but because it was inevitable. At a time and place when the average life expectancy was about 35 years old, John Dunn scoffed in the face of of death because he was convinced of what lay beyond it. His Lord and King who would at the end of history cast death and Hades into the lake of fire. Like Dun, like Paul, for the Christian death is not a thing to be feared. It is a a thing we can approach with hope because we are convinced that death is just a doorway to true life. For the Christian, everything that is meaningful, everything that is eternal, everything that is real, everything that we can hold on to and trust is on the other side of that door. So, why do we approach it with fear? and trepidation. Well, I think we face it with fear and trepidation because it is so easy for the weights of this world to continue to cling on us, isn't it? And so we need to be reminded of this hope that we have. I think about when when Paul is writing to the Thessalonian Christians who they're worried about their family members, their relatives, their brothers and sisters in Christ who have already died. And Jesus hasn't returned yet. And What will happen to them? And Paul reminds them, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We mourn. We mourn because death is evil. Death is bad. Death was not supposed to be the operating principle of this universe. God created us with the hope of eternal life. And so death is a flaw that sin has brought into the system. So it's right to mourn it. But we don't mourn it like those people who have no hope. We mourn it like people who have hope because we know That those who have loved Christ and loved his appearing are now sitting in his presence with a crown of righteousness, enjoying the eternal life that Jesus paid for them. And and we will do the same if we fight the good fight, complete the race, and keep the faith. It is easy to lose sight of hope. And so Paul reminded Timothy, Paul reminded the Thessalonians, Paul in almost every, not almost, in every single one of his letters reminds Christians of the hope that we have in Christ because the hopes of this world are so clingy. They stick to us like, like nettles or like Velcro and And we need to be constantly peeling them off ourselves to keep our focus on a hope that is before us. And we need to disciple for that to happen. Just as Paul reminded Christian after Christian after Christian, we need to remind each other where our hope lies. Because in our difficult seasons, we are tempted to put our minds and hearts on things of this world. And so we need to be reminded. And that reminding is part of of what we talked about uh, last week. That Timothy was called to, to use Scripture to teach, to reprove, to correct, and that's the big one, I think, with hope, is correction. I often need my hope corrected. I, I, I need my hope refocused. You're, you, Chris, you're, you're starting to place your hope on things in this world. You're, you're placing your hope on, on how this event goes or how this budget turns out or you know, how your kids are doing in school or the baseball game or, or whatever else. And your hope is not in what lays ahead. I I need those corrections. I need those reminders. That's why God has given us each other. We will die. You will die. I'm 99.98% sure of that fact. Jesus might come back before you die, but you will probably die. How will you die? Will you die in weakness? Will you die in fear? Will you die in spiritual simplicity, I guess? Or will you die a good death? Will you die in service of Christ and His gospel. Will you die having made your life matter because however God called you to walk through it, you lifted it up as a sacrifice to Him and it was for you about the eternal things behind it and not the temporal things in the middle of it? Are you prepared for that death. Will you be able to get to the end of the race and say you competed, you struggled, you fought, and by God's strength and the support of other Christians, I am still standing, I've kept the faith. We see daily, weekly stories of Christians who say they couldn't keep the faith. They walked away. Now, oftentimes they say they walked away when something hard happened. If you walk away when something hard happened, you weren't following at all to begin with because Jesus has come and die." So the Christian life was never supposed to be easy. So if you can only follow Jesus when it's easy, then you can't follow him at all. Are you prepared to die? And is your hope set on the other side of death? Do you have the confidence that you can look death straight in the eye and say, don't be proud, death. I know some people fear you. I know some people say you're dreadful. But you can't kill me. And you can't kill my brothers and sisters in Christ because we're already dead. We have died in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. And you are just, like, John, like Dunn said, you are a slave Death, you are a slave. You you do the bidding of illness. Illness is your master. The executioner is your master. Accidents are your master, Death. You have no power. What will you do? You take out my mortal life so that I can be in the arms of a Savior? Do your best! Can you look Death in the eye and say, Forget it. I know what's on the other side. I have no fear of you. That's how we are called to live as Christians. We need to disciple each other to die. Because it is essential. It is something that you will deal with. You must be prepared for it. And so we disciple each other to die. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, forgive us that we are so short-sighted that we are so consumed by what's happening this afternoon or what's happening next week or next month or next year that we lay up our plans for what the future is going to look like. We lay up our plans for our vacations and our time off and how we dream things will be and how much sweat and blood and tears we put into changing our circumstances for a few days or a few weeks or a few years, and we don't contemplate our death, the death that we have fairly earned by our sin, the death that has been appointed to us as your word has taught us and we forget that we are mortal. But thank you, God, that in Jesus, we can die before our time because he died for us. And so that death no longer holds sway over us. Father, prepare us to die May we be a gateway of people that disciples one another with a view to being ready to die. May we disciple each other to live lives of value, lives they offer up a sacrifice to you, so that in the end, our death is just a drink offering poured on top of the sacrifice. Prepare us to die, Father, by encouraging one another, shaping one another, and pushing one another that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but that we might endure to the end. Help us to disciple one another to keep our hope fixated, not on what is in front of us, but what is coming on the other side of this mortal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to sing praises to the Jesus who dies for us.